Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 183. Our first story this week comes from the atlasobscura.com and it's written by Anne Eubank. The Glamorous Australian Guide to Eating Invasive Species When my high school biology teacher rolled in a TV trolley one afternoon, we had no idea that instead of an episode of Bill Nye the Science Guy, we were about to watch Cane Toads, an unnatural history a surprisingly well-known documentary about invasive cane toads in Australia. Imported from Hawaii to curb a beetle-devouring sugarcane in Queensland, the toads procreated furiously, polished off native bugs and poisoned other animals that tried to eat them. After all, cane toads are toxic. Nevertheless, a new Tasmanian cookbook contains a recipe for sweet and sour cane toad legs. Its name, Eat the Problem, announces its straightforward solution to invasive species and the cookbook consists of 500 plus pages of essays, art and recipes whose star ingredient is a plant or animal overtaking ecosystems in Australia and around the world. The project is a brainchild of Kersha Cacelli, an American artist and curator. Cacelli was inspired by the enormous nutria rodents laying waste to New Orleans, which locals have tried to hunt and eat into submission. The volume was released in March by Tasmania's edgy Museum of Old and New Art. On its rainbow-hued pages, chefs apply their talents to invasive plants and animals. Chef Dominique Crenn takes on wakami, a type of invasive seaweed, by applying it to root vegetables. And Philippe Parola of New Orleans contributes a recipe for Asian carp amandine. Along with lustrous photography and recipes, the pages are filled with art and offbeat musings from a host of contributors on food, history and the natural world. The point of the book, writes Cachell in a foreword interview, is to glamorise the devouring of invasive animals and plants. She also describes an earlier attempt to pitch nutria fur to fashion houses. Many recipes are accordingly glam, both in ingredients and technique. 
Not all of the recipes in Eat the Problem, which is as much art book as a cookbook, are advisable to make, such as whole roasted camel. Australia has a feral camel problem. And hemlock cocktail. While the recipe for cane toad uses only the legs, which lack toxic glands, it also comes with a note from a chemistry professor warning against eating any amount. Recipes for feral cat, Tasmanian style and in tamales, push the envelope of social acceptability. Although it's undeniable that cats threaten Australian wildlife and have hunted many native species to extinction. Since people cause so much destruction worldwide, a recipe for human cooked with garlic cloves and bay leaves is also included. Human is not on the menu at the upcoming Eat the Problem events at Mona, which is the Tasmanian Museum of Old and New Art, which range from Sunday lunches to smaller tastings. With monochromatic, invasive species courses served atop the world's largest glockenspiel, The meals do not come cheap. Neither does the book itself, which lists at a luxe $277.77. Proceeds from book sales, though, help fund Cashel's kitchen garden program for schools in Tasmania and New Orleans, appropriately called 24 Carat. And if you visit the show notes at patreon.com forward slash origins, there are some photographs of recipes from the book itself. You may have noticed that I've changed the location for the show notes from origins.info to patreon.com forward slash origins. That's because over the next few months I'm going to phase out the origins.info website as I really don't need it anymore. Even if you're not a patron, you can still access the show notes at patreon.com forward slash origins without any problems. And also from the atlasobscura.com, an article by Laura Kinnery. After decades of being ignored, a nut from a 20-pound pine cone is back on Australian menus. And this is something I know a fair bit about because we used to use these nuts in our Aboriginal education program when I was working at the Botanic Gardens. Aboriginal artist Leeton Lee grew up honing his survival skills in the Australian bush crafting shelters from the bark of fallen logs, carving spears out of tree branches, and snacking on the tart berries of lily-pilly bushes. But it wasn't until he spent time as an adult with the elders of Sherberg, an Aboriginal community in Queensland, that he had his first bunyanut. I couldn't believe it's something I sort of missed along the way, he says, and that a lot of other people missed too. Bunya trees are the stuff of legend, Roaming dinosaurs likely snacked on their flowering pines, and their harvest has been an Aboriginal food source for centuries. Native to Queensland, where they thrive in the state's wet tropical soils, the bunya pine can grow to more than 150 feet, with a trunk more than 4 feet in diameter. 
The tree's immense dome-shaped crown is decidedly impressive. And every three to four years, this towering evergreen produces pine cones the shape of an egg and the size of a football that can weigh as much as 22 pounds. When a bunya pine barrels off a tree, it typically drops intact, a spiky pod filled with anywhere from 30 to 100 husk-covered nuts. Before Europeans arrived, Australian Aborigines met every three years for a massive celebration when bunya nuts were at their ripest. Once bunya cones would start to show, Aborigines in the Bunya Mountains would send out word that this was the year of the festival, says Lee. Then Indigenous peoples from all different tribes would travel from as far as Western Queensland in Victoria to come. For centuries during these festivals, tribes put aside differences to trade, arrange marriages and feast on the bunyanut. Raw, roasted, boiled and sometimes ground into flour and baked. Bunya pines are a food source that people can carry with them, Lee says, noting that people simply would gather and eat these massive natural lunchboxes while travelling to and from the event. Southern Queensland's Bunya Mountains, an isolated section of Australia's Great Dividing Range and about 124 miles northwest of Brisbane, are still home to the country's largest stand of ancient bunya trees and rogue bunyas tower beside residences and along former Aboriginal trading routes statewide. But a bunya festival has not been held since the early 20th century, when the relocation of Aborigines to government settlements, coupled with European logging of bunya pine timber, brought these events to an abrupt end. This colonisation curtailed bunya nut food culture, and resulted in widespread ignorance of their potential as a food source. A lot of people have them on their property and don't realise it, says Lee. They just chuck the fallen pines in their trailer and take them to the dump. They don't know they've got good food there. In 2018, Lee decided to hold a free bunya workshop, introducing the tree and its benefits. One of the big things for me, he says is that we've got a lot of kids that are going to school hungry and they're walking past these food sources on the way to and from class. I also thought this would be a good opportunity to share a bit about our Aboriginal history and the stories that go with it. A quick Facebook post gauging local interest told him all he needed to know. I was only expecting a few people to respond, he said, but instead I heard from more than a hundred The majority were non-Aboriginal Australians. Several participants drove hours for Lee's May 2018 event. Here, at his own bunya gathering, Lee cooked up nuts for guests, offered culinary tips on incorporating them into everything from stir-fries, which bring out their chestnut-like flavour, to sweets such as chocolate, which gain added texture and earthiness, and gave out gift bags of nuts. One of the good things with bunya nuts, says Lee, is that while traditionally they'd be stored or buried for preservation or fermenting, nowadays we can freeze them. He taught his audience too the importance of sustainability, not just in looking after the trees, but in not over-harvesting them. When collecting bunya pines, he advises, leave some behind for other people to enjoy and some for the wallabies too. 
Lee's evangelising of bunya nuts fits into a larger indigenous food movement, gaining culinary traction countrywide. Top restaurants such as the French-inspired Vue du Monde on the 55th floor of Melbourne's iconic Rialto Towers and Adelaide's native food restaurant Orana are incorporating indigenous ingredients from bunya nuts to crocodile, sprinkling them on sea urchin and serving them up as soup. While Lee appreciates seeing Aboriginal foods in restaurants, he also sees this culinary trend as a prime opportunity to involve and highlight Australia's Indigenous population. Think about things like boomerangs and artwork, he says. Intellectual property that's been reappropriated and mass-produced in places like China and Indonesia. This is a chance for Aboriginal people to showcase our own culture. One such example is something wild, an Indigenous foods purveyor housed in South Australia's Adelaide Central Market, as both an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, two distinct Indigenous peoples. Owner and manager Daniel Motlop grew up munching on kakadu palms and green ants in the country's Northern Territory. With something wild, he's aimed to bring these lesser-known foods to the masses. From a sustainability point of view, there's so much of this native food, or bush tucker as we call it, he says. Why not showcase what Australia has to offer? Motlop sells bunya nuts alongside marine veggies such as samphire and sea blight, and meats such as emu, kangaroo and crocodile. This stuff has been a part of Indigenous communities for years. In our songs and our dream time and in everything we do in life, he says referring to a spiritual concept at the heart of Aboriginal religion and culture. Both Motlop and Lee hope that Australia's growing interest in Aboriginal foods can bring a better understanding of Aboriginal history as well. It's a great thing to have the stories that accompany a plum, berry or green once it's been harvested, says Motlop. I think it showcases Australia's Aboriginal culture and in a good light that really hasn't been documented well in the past. A Queensland horticulturalist named Bruce Thompson has even pushed to make Bunya Mountains National Park a UNESCO World Heritage Site, in part because of its sacredness to Aboriginal communities and the ancient stand of bunya pines the park contains. Lee is also considering ways to re-establish the Bunya Festival as a way for Aboriginal people to reconnect and introduce their beloved bunya nut to a much wider audience. We are Australia's minority population now, Lee says, so it's really important that others who live here understand what they have and how best to care for it. And if you're interested in what the bunya nut looks like and some of the other Indigenous foods, visit the show notes, click on the link to this article. There are some quite good photographs associated with it. Magnificent man in the 
And as you may have gathered, the following story is something to do with aeroplanes. From the warisboring.com website. These madmen flew B-52 bombers at wave-top heights and amazingly lived to tell about it. And this is written by David Axe. A hundred and sixty feet from tip to tail, a hundred and eighty-five feet across... 240 tonnes of metal, fuel, bombs and human flesh, travelling at 650 miles per hour. You wouldn't think something so big, moving so fast, would be capable of skimming the ocean surface at an altitude of just 80 or 90 feet, lower than the deck of an aircraft carrier. The US Air Force's Boeing B-52 bombers can and have done just that and there are photos and pilot testimonies to prove it. The Air Force has been upgrading its 50-year-old B-52H bombers with the latest electronics, prepping the giant warplanes for another three decades as America's most fearsome aerial weapon. In particular, the brass want the long-range bombers to help deter Chinese aggression in the Pacific and in the highly unlikely event of major war, send Beijing's hundreds of warships to the ocean's bottom. B-52 Force has been prepping for that mission for decades. As far back as the late 1970s, bomber crews honed sea-skimming flight profiles that would hopefully allow them to penetrate stiff enemy defences and blow the hell out of ships. Soviet ships, that is. The website Vintage Wings of Canada has described this deadly art of low-level flying. And retired Air Force B-52 pilot Doug Aitken told the site about his own experiences pushing his bomber down to wave-top heights during the Iran hostage crisis in December 1979. Due regard. We ended up sending a squadron's worth of B-52Hs to Guam, Aitken recalled. At Guam, the deployed crews immediately began training in the conventional missions they were not proficient in. Sea surveillance, mine laying and conventional iron bomb missions. We were tasked by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to fly a mission deep into the Indian Ocean-Persian Gulf to surveil the Soviet fleet. At this time, the US 7th Fleet was in the area being shadowed by the Soviets, and their bare bombers, launching from Afghanistan, were harassing our carriers. The JCS evidently wanted to show the Soviets and the Iranians that our strategic air power could reach them that far out. These two B-52Hs launched in darkness, filed as KC-135, aerial tankers, to Diego Garcia, complete with bogus KC-135 crew lists on the flight plan. Gunners were instructed to leave their radars off, and radar navigators were instructed to use frequencies that KC-135s would use. After refuelling with tankers based in Diego Garcia, these B-52s flew due regard, that is, no flight plan, into the Persian Gulf. 
This deception was successful. The crews made contact with the US Navy and were vectored to the Soviet fleet. On their first pass, the Soviet crew were on deck waving, at first assuming the aircraft were their own bear bombers. On the second pass, not one member of the Soviet Navy was to be seen. Thirty hours and thirty minutes in duration, the bomber sorties became known as Winchester missions. Deadly, like the 30-30 calibre rifle. And from the sun.co.uk website, a story by Miranda Knox. Suicide Squad. The Chernobyl disaster was seconds from killing millions more and wiping out half of Europe had it not been for three heroic volunteers. And there is a video and a number of photographs to go with this story. The Chernobyl disaster is the worst nuclear accident in history with up to half a million related deaths reported in the years since. On April 26, 1986, a massive chemical explosion ripped through the Chernobyl nuclear power plant complex in north Ukraine, releasing 400 times more radiation than the Hiroshima atomic bomb, the equivalent of 500 nuclear bombs. In the immediate aftermath, 31 people died, including two at the scene and 29 firefighters. But radiation poisoning means the long-term death toll could be as high as half a million. The Soviet government was accused of trying to cover up the extent of the disaster, which saw 5 million people exposed to extreme radiation across Belarus, Ukraine and Russia. Problems recorded include a dramatic increase in childhood thyroid cancer and birth defects. The catastrophic event is now the focus of a five-part Sky original and HBO drama airing on Sky Atlantic. It recounts the harrowing tales of those who risked their lives in a bid to minimise the impact of the disaster. As the show reveals, things could have been even more catastrophic were it not for three heroic volunteers who selflessly risked their own lives to prevent a further explosion. Half of Europe wiped out. Following the accident at Chernobyl's Unit 4, all fires were extinguished within six hours, but a more dangerous problem soon emerged. Days after the explosion, Soviet authorities made the horrifying discovery that the core of the reactor that had exploded was still melting down. Underneath this was a huge pool of water which acted as a coolant for the power plant. The melting core was nearing the water, which, had they mixed, would have caused a second steam explosion. Arthur Leatherbarrow, author of the 2016 book Chernobyl, one day, 23 hours, 40 minutes, explains, this would have done unimaginable damage and destroyed the entire power station, including the three other reactors. Estimates suggest that had this been allowed to happen, half of Europe would have been wiped out, many millions would have perished, and the entire area would have been uninhabitable for over half a million years. 
Soviet physicist Vasily Nestorenko says Minsk, which is 320 kilometres from Chernobyl, would have been razed and Europe rendered uninhabitable. Radioactive water up to their knees. Firefighters had tried unsuccessfully to fully drain the pool containing 200 million litres of water using specialised hoses. This is where the team of three volunteers stepped in to go down to the water tank and open a valve to release the water. Two plant engineers, Alexei Anenenko and Valery Bezbolov, and shift supervisor Boris Baranov, were told they could refuse the assignment, which became known as a suicide mission. Describing their heroic efforts, Leather Barrow says, The men entered the basement in wetsuits, radioactive water up to their knees, in a corridor stuffed with a myriad of pipes and valves. It was like finding a needle in a haystack. Anenko was reported to have later said, How could I do that when I was the only person on the shift who knew where the valves were located? A deadly rumour. Contrary to reports that all three died as a result of poisoning within weeks, the men did actually survive their mission, but still risked their lives to save millions. Without them and their valiant actions... An additional 77 square miles would have been destroyed and the water supply for 30 million people and northern Ukraine would have been unusable for more than a century. A haunted ghost town. The final death toll caused by the disaster is unknown and widely disputed with the United Nations figures claiming 4,000 people have died as a result of the accident at most. However, according to The Guardian, Nikolai Omilenets, deputy head of the National Commission for Radiation Protection in the Ukraine, has claimed at least half a million people, perhaps more, have already died out of the two million people who were officially classed as victims of Chernobyl in the Ukraine. 34,499 people who took part in the clean-up of Chernobyl have died in the years since the catastrophe. The deaths of these people from cancers was nearly three times as high as the rest of the population. We have found that infant mortality increased 20 to 30 percent because of chronic exposure to radiation after the accident. There's no denying the horrifying impact the radiation had on the people living in Pripyat, the city founded in 1970 to serve the Chernobyl power plant. It's now a ghost town deemed unfit for humans to live in for 3,000 years because of dangerously high contamination levels. The area surrounding the power plant, 350,000 people, weren't evacuated until 36 hours after the explosion. And in the period since, some 5 million people have been exposed to radiation living on contaminated land in Belarus, Russia and Ukraine. And from the abc.net.au news site, 
A story by Ben Deacon. The incredible story of the Australian invention of the puffer jacket. Few people know the puffer jacket, that triumph of warmth and comfort over good looks, came from the hottest and flattest continent on earth. The story leads back almost a hundred years to a farmer's son from Orange who became a war hero, inventor and rival to George Mallory in the race to be the first person to climb Mount Everest. His name was George Finch, a chemist and brilliant mountaineer. He won an MBE for his bomb-making skills during World War I. In 1922, he was invited on Britain's first Everest expedition. He was a controversial choice. He was a colonial. He had long hair, which in those days meant it went to his shoulders. And he'd been divorced, said Robert Wainwright, author of Maverick Mountaineer, a biography of Mr Finch. He came across as an arrogant figure at times, but it was more that he was a confident person in himself and he wouldn't lie down to anyone. At the time, mountain climbing was a gentleman's game and Finch's greatest rival on the expedition was an aristocratic golden boy by the name of George Mallory. Finch and Mallory were regarded as the two best climbers in the world but there was no doubt who London's Alpine Club wished to be the first one up Everest. Mallory. They were frenemies, I suppose, the two Georges, Wainwright said. One was a romantic figure, Mallory, who trekked across the top of Tibet naked, often. Then there was Finch, who was a more dour, studious figure who plotted every move. But Finch was too brilliant not to invite on the expedition. For the climb, he invented two technologies that are still used on Everest today. Bottled oxygen and the puffer jacket. Among the aristocrats leading the expedition, bottled oxygen was doubly suspect. It was considered a form of unfair assistance, and therefore un-British. And, what's worse, it was invented by a colonial. His puffer jacket, or as Finch called it, his eiderdown coat, was considered beyond suspect. At the time, English climbers wore a mixture of jumpers, scarves, even pyjamas, topped with a suit of Norfolk tweed. Finch's puffer jacket was bright green and custom-made from hot air balloon fabric. The colour alone would have made him the butt of jokes, Wainwright said. The others were dressed in various forms of tweed, and looking fabulous. Wainwright found a recipe for the puffer in the archives of the Royal Geographic Society in London. It was from S.W. Silver & Co., outfit contractors and manufacturers of camping equipment. An accompanying note said, We are sending you herewith an eiderdown lined coat, trousers and gauntlets as per instructions from Captain Farrar. These garments have been made to the order of Captain Finch of the Mount Everest expedition. Behind the scenes, Alpine Club leaders were sending each other notes, mocking Finch's puffer jacket. They have contrived the most wonderful apparatus that will make you die of laughing, wrote Expedition Secretary Arthur Hinks. Pray see that a picture of Finch in his patent climbing outfit with the oxygen apparatus is taken by the official photographers. Early in the expedition, the use of oxygen was banned and Finch found himself out of favour. 
After being observed repairing his own boots, something a gentleman would never do, Deputy Leader Colonel Edward Strutt was heard to remark, I always knew the fellow was a shit. But Finch's skill and ingenuity did start to win the respect of the men. Expedition photographer John Nowell wrote in his diary, Finch, who had a scientific brain, invented a wonderful green quilted eiderdown suit of aeroplane fabric. Not a particle of wind would get through. Later in the expedition, Finch wrote in his journal, Everybody now envying my eiderdown coat, and it is no longer laughed at. Mallory was given the first chance to climb the mountain. In his tweed suit and without the assistance of oxygen, Mallory failed to reach the summit. Days later, Finch was finally allowed to climb using his down jacket and oxygen system. Finch reached 8,360 metres, the highest any person had climbed, before his exhausted partner forced his retreat. London's Alpine Club returned to Everest two years later in 1924. George Mallory led the climbers. George Finch was not invited. Instead, Mallory's partner for the attempt was third-year chemistry student Andrew Sandy Irvine. The two were last seen alive moving quickly, high on Everest. The two died in their tweed, carrying Finch's oxygen system. Robert Wainwright wonders what might have been if it were Finch climbing with Mallory rather than the young and inexperienced Sandy Irvine. The two Georges could have, should have, conquered Everest that day, and they both should have survived. It's part of the mystery, he said. Finch quit climbing nine years later after friends of his were killed in a climbing accident. He went on to become one of England's most senior scientists. His son, Peter Finch, became a famous actor. Thirty years later, George Finch was an advisor and mentor on Edmund Hillary's successful ascent of Everest in 1953. For the expedition, New Zealand company Ferrydown improved Finch's design to create a jacket that looks remarkably similar to today's puffer. The rest is history. And if you visit the show notes, there's some great photographs of the people involved in these expeditions, including a photograph of Mallory, who was trekking nude across Tibet. I don't know how he did it. Would be very cold on the extremities, I would imagine. Gives me the willies just thinking about it. And from the Aussie.com website, she outsold Dickens. So, why don't we know her name? And this is written by Addison Nugent. Queen Victoria awaited her package. The grand matriarch of the era that bore her name was not one for frivolity, but she allowed herself a few pleasures. The parcel that her servant handed her was one of them. 
a copy of The Sorrows of Satan, the new book by her favourite author, Marie Corelli. An enormously popular author in the late 19th and 20th centuries, Corelli has been all but forgotten by today's literary canon. But for a few short decades, Corelli reigned supreme as the queen of popular literature. The illegitimate child of Scottish poet and songwriter Charles Mackay and his servant Elizabeth Mills, Marie Mackay rocketed above her humble beginnings, attaining superstar status in the burgeoning age of mass media under the pen name Marie Corelli. In the three decades that followed the publication of her first novel, A Romance of Two Worlds, in 1886, Corelli reigned as the world's best-selling author, with at least 30 of her novels becoming global hits. Her works were a curious mix of occultism, romance, gothic mystery and Christian morality tale, and far outsold those of contemporary rivals like Charles Dickens. She shattered all previous publishing records by selling 100,000 copies of her books per year, When Corelli made public appearances, thousands of fans would show up, often fighting to touch her gown as she made her way through the throngs. Corelli's work tapped into the fascinations of the day, electricity, spiritualism and theosophy. All of these topics converge in a romance of two worlds, which tells the story of a young woman's astral travels under the guidance of Heliobus a mysterious being who teaches her about human electricity. The book also contains an explanation of Christ as electricity that compares God to the telegraph. After her readers started to actually devote themselves to a telegraphic Jesus, Corelli willingly assumed the role of guru, stating in 1896 that if she didn't believe wholeheartedly in the electric creed, she wouldn't have written it. But while she was adored by the public and the Queen herself, Corelli was largely panned by critics. Reviews of her work could be savage, and many of her contemporary male authors despised her. When Mark Twain came to visit her in 1907, he later wrote that his time with her was the most hateful my 72 years have ever known. Even today, Corelli's popularity, according to literary scholar Simon James in the Journal of Victorian Culture, is often explained away by the supposed quiescence of her writing with the status quo, the success of her books, the consequence of giving readers what they want. Some contemporary scholars, however, are a bit more forgiving, chalking some of her bad press up to misogyny. While it's true that her prose and plots can leave something to be desired, it's also true that she's been unfairly marginalised in literary history, says Jill Galvin, an associate professor of English at Ohio State University, who specialises in Victorian views of technology and the occult. Her popularity itself was probably a problem at the time, given rising critical distinctions between art and mass entertainment. Unlike many celebrities today, who invite fan into the most intimate aspects of their lives, Corelli strived to maintain an air of mystery around her personal life. 
She never married and lived for 40 years with her life companion, Bertha Weyer, to whom she left her entire estate upon her death in 1924. Corelli never identified herself as a lesbian, but scholars have noted the frequent erotic descriptions of women in her novels. Corelli carefully constructed her public persona as a grandiose eccentric, pulling stunts like buying an authentic Venetian gondola, complete with gondolier, in which to ride down the Avon River. She protected her image by fighting unauthorised photographers, even filing a lawsuit against some paparazzi for publishing unflattering photos of her. For this reason, the vast majority of surviving photographs show Corelli dressed in flowing robes and romantic period costumes, hair adorned with wildflowers. While Corelli herself was a businesswoman, her female characters were often wide-eyed ingenues, beautiful and frail embodiments of Victorian ideals. Corelli's romantic females stood in stark contrast to the emerging concept of the new woman. During the height of Corelli's fame, the suffragist movement was in full swing, with women hitting the streets to demand the right to vote, attend college and hold jobs. The new woman, as opposed to the Victorian homemaker, was an entity independent of both the household and her husband. Corelli staunchly opposed the idea of the new woman, even publishing an anti-women's suffrage pamphlet titled Woman or Suffragette. The traditional views exhibited in her most successful works, though popular at the height of her fame, quickly became antiquated as genre and convention-breaking female authors like Virginia Woolf rose to prominence. This, combined with lacklustre reviews and her dismissal as nothing more than a hitmaker, barred Corelli's entrance into the canon of Victorian literature, and her works have been largely forgotten. Today, however, her novels are being revisited by scholars for Corelli's unique take on femininity and gender at the turn of the 20th century. Though her characters adhered to Victorian ideals such as modesty, they, like their creator, were independent and smart, constantly asserting their worth beyond domesticity. In her 1895 novel, The Sorrows of Satan, Corelli asked if women should be kept in their places as men's drudges or toys, as wives, mothers, nurses, cooks, menders of socks and shirts, and housekeepers generally. By this definition, Corelli was certainly a woman with no interest in being kept in her place. The ancestral home of the plague, most infamous for causing Europe's Black Death, has likely always been much farther east, in Central Asia. There it lives in rodents, 
such as the marmots that make their burrows in the vast open grasslands. For thousands of years, the fleas that bite those rodents have also been biting people. There are 5,000-year-old Bronze Age skeletons in the region that contain traces of the bacteria that caused the plague. And yet, for a few brief decades in the 20th century, the Soviet Union thought it could eradicate the plague. In that era of five-year plans, tens of thousands of people were mobilised to poison rodents, spray DDT and burn any grass that surviving animals might try to eat. It was a literal scorched earth campaign. Officially, it worked. From the Atlantic.com A story by Sarah Zhang Soviets tried so so hard to eliminate the plague. The Soviet anti-plague system grew from a network of facilities that began in the Tsarist era, when the plague was causing many small but not catastrophic outbreaks. Scientists are still figuring out why the Black Death bacteria were so exceptionally deadly. Later, the system took on other endemic diseases such as anthrax, and eventually started working on bioweapons. In 2002, biodefence researchers with CNS, the James Martin Centre for Non-Proliferation Studies, started visiting several outposts still operating as research institutes in the former Soviet republics. That's when they learned about a series of unofficial books titled Interesting Stories of the Activities and People of the AP System of Russia and the Soviet Union. AP is shorthand for anti-plague, and many of the photographs and details about these efforts are only preserved in these 12 volumes. They contain scientific manuscripts, as well as more unexpected historical material biographies, poems, sketches, lists of scientists purged for political crimes and a meditation on socialism or a just society. The editor Moisey Iosovich Levi was a former anti-plague scientist who began compiling the series after the fall of the Soviet Union. The idea is to shine light on the activity and people of the AP system he wrote in the introduction to the fifth volume, so that it does not suffer the same fate as legendary Atlantis, which is now known only from the tales of Greek historians. Levi died before the last volume was published in 2002, but indeed these stories have been saved. CNS researchers also translated excerpts into English and donated an original copy in Russian to the Hoover Institute at Stanford. Altogether, the volumes tell a very different tale about the plague in the Soviet Union than what the country was telling the rest of the world. Eradication began in earnest in the 1930s, as part of Soviet efforts to change the economies of the Northern Caucasus and Central Asia. To eliminate the plague, they decided to eliminate the rodents that act as a natural reservoir for the bacteria. The weapon of choice was grain mixed with poison, zinc phosphide, black cyanide and barium fluoroacetate. 
Literally tens of thousands of people were employed just to spoon poison into the burrows, says Susan D. Jones, an historian of science at the University of Minnesota, who recently published about the Soviet anti-plague system in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Many of these workers were locals, women, young boys and the otherwise unemployed. Scientists in interesting stories occasionally groused about their unreliability. In addition to eradicating rodents, the Soviets also tried to eradicate fleas that spread the plague. The workers mixed insecticide with the rodent poison they put in flea-infested burrows. In the years after World War II, says Jones, surplus military trucks and aeroplanes also sprayed DDT over vast tracts of land. Lastly, they would burn the vegetation so that any surviving rodents would have no food and plough the burrows so they would have no shelter. In 1960, Soviet scientists boasted in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization that the USSR had not seen a case of human plague since 1928. But that was only true on paper. In reality, scientists were still responding to outbreaks because mandates were passed down centrally and because the fear of admitting failure was intense and legitimate, no one wanted to report one. Local authorities would say, it's eradicated or we don't have an outbreak. Because they ignored the outbreak, it would spread to other republics of the Soviet Union, says Sonia Ben-Ugram-Gormley a biodefence researcher now at George Mason University, who also co-authored the CNS reports on the Soviet anti-plague system. When the plague broke out on the border of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, for example, Kazakh scientists would try to contact their colleagues across the border who were kept from telling the truth. But, says Ben Ugram-Gormley, if they were told the colleague was on vacation... Most of the time that meant he was out in the field responding to the outbreak. In 1998, the Russian newspaper Sovosheno Sekrento, Top Secret, published a list of just a few of the plague outbreaks that had in fact happened. Moscow, 1939. The Southern Volga Ural Region, 1945. Central Asia, 1945. Caspian Sea Region, Turkmenia, 1946. Astrakhan Oblast in Kazakhstan, 1947-48. Turkmenia, 1949. Central Asia, 1953, 1955 and 1958. Mount Elbrus Region, 1970. Kalmykia, 1972. Dagestan, 1975, Kalmykia, 1979, Caspian Sea Region, 1980, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, 1981. In interesting stories, scientists wrote about their experiences responding to several of these outbreaks. We are only in the past 10 years recovering the data for how many human cases there really were, says Jones. The eradication efforts didn't work because the area was simply too big, too vast to cover with humans or aeroplanes. The Soviet anti-plague system had more than a 100 institutes spread over 11 republics, but it still wasn't extensive enough. Jones points out that successfully eliminating all the plague-carrying rodents in the Soviet Union would have meant wholesale ecological collapse 
as many species rely on rodents for food and their burrows for shelter. Thankfully, it didn't happen. Rodents would be temporarily eliminated in an area and then come back, along with the plague. Beginning in the 1960s, as reality intruded, the Soviet anti-plague system shifted from total eradication to control. The scientists knew that plague outbreaks among humans tended to follow rodent outbreaks in any local area. So they would conduct plague surveillance by systematically testing animals. If the results came back positive in an area, they would focus their efforts there. People were taught to avoid sick rodents. Patients were treated with antibiotics and quarantined. Vaccines eventually became available for people at high risk. People had to learn to live with the threat of the plague, as they had done for millennia in Central Asia. There are still occasional cases of the plague in Central Asia today, in and around the former USSR. In Mongolia recently, a young couple died of the plague. The culprit? An infected marmot that they had eaten raw. And if you visit the show notes, there are some great old photographs from this time period showing the eradication process and some of the people who were involved. Worth looking if you're interested. And from the amightygirl.com website, a story by Catherine. The Angels of Bataan, the World War II nurses who survived three years in a Japanese prison camp. In 1942, 77 American Army and Navy nurses were captured by the Japanese, marking the beginning of what would become one of the greatest yet little-known stories of heroism and sacrifice during World War II. Incredibly, every single woman survived three long years of starvation, illness and fear as prisoners of war, all while continuing to work as a nursing unit, providing medical care to the thousands of people imprisoned alongside them. They were a tough bunch. They had a mission, says Lieutenant Colonel Nancy Cantrell and historian with the Army Nurse Corps. They were surviving for the boys and each other. That does give you a bit of added strength. When American Army and Navy nurses were first stationed in the Philippines early in the war, it seemed like a tropical paradise. The weather was beautiful, the duties were light, and there was plenty of free time to play golf, fine dining and dates and parties with the soldiers. Nursing also provided them with an alternative career to the restricted options available to women. Teaching and office work held very little appeal, said Elizabeth M. Norman, author of We Band of Angels, the untold story of the American women trapped on Bataan. The former meant taking care of someone else's children, the latter someone else's man. They took pride in their professionalism, but no one expected that they would ever see combat. 
Everything changed on December 8, 1941, when word came about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. As the nurses talked nervously, Josephine Nesbitt, who was serving her second tour with the Army Nurse Corps and was second in command for the nurses in the Philippines, spoke up. Girls, you've got to sleep today, she declared. We can't weep and wail over this, because you have to work tonight. As she predicted that evening, Japanese planes began bombing Manila. For the first time, the nurses saw brutal combat injuries flood into their wards. As it became obvious that Manila would fall, the nurses were evacuated to Corregidor and Bataan, where they set up two jungle hospitals. The first open-air wards run by Americans since the Civil War. Diseases like malaria and dysentery became commonplace. But the nurses stayed at their posts, treating the sick and injured as best they could. Bataan fell in April of 1942, and it was obvious that Corregidor would not hold much longer. Knowing that there was not enough time to evacuate all of her nurses, Captain Maud C. Davison, the chief nurse of the Philippine Department, joined Colonel Wibb Cooper, the ranking medical officer, in creating a list of 20 nurses who would receive priority for evacuation. Her nurses later noted that, although Davison insisted that the selections were random, she had sent home all of the women who were ill, injured or otherwise unlikely to be able to withstand lengthy captivity. When the Allies surrendered the Philippines to the Japanese army, Davison led the remaining 66 nurses to the Santo Tomas internment camp in Manila, one of the notoriously harsh prison camps run by the Japanese military. There they joined 11 Navy nurses, who under the command of Lieutenant Laura M. Cobb had stayed in Manila while it fell to support the patients who could not be moved. In the camp the nurses agreed that they would continue to provide medical care to their fellow prisoners. Davison maintained the same discipline in the prison camp that she had while they were stationed in Manila, setting daily shifts of at least four hours even as their captors cut their rations to 700 calories a day. I have always known that if I could survive that, I could survive anything, Lieutenant Mildred Dalton Manning later said. By January 1945, with Japanese losses mounting, the situation in the camp was dire. The nurses had resorted to eating weeds, roots, flowers and slugs. Patients in their care regularly died of malnutrition. With prisoners' rations down to only one cup of rice twice a day, Manning observed that it was the year we starved to death. By the time the camp was liberated on February 3, 1945, the nurses had lost an average of 30% of their body weight. Davison, who normally weighed 135 pounds, had dropped to 80 pounds and had to be hospitalised. Still, every single nurse who entered Santo Thomas left it. There were 77 American women who became POWs and there were 77 who walked out in 1945, says Norman. This is unprecedented, particularly for women who had no formal survival training. When the women were rescued, there was brief fanfare. They received bronze stars for valour and many of them were welcomed home with local celebrations. But little more was done for them even though they were still weak from their ordeal. 
Davison, who had to take medical retirement in 1946, was recommended for the Distinguished Service Medal. However, the War Decorations Board refused to grant it, saying that Davison's heroism had not been an independent action, but was at the direction of the male medical officer. The nurses were also denied many of the benefits granted to men returning from the war since they were not considered combat forces, and many veterans service organisations like the VFW and the American Legion did not even accept female members until three decades later. Fortunately, in recent years, more has been done to remember and recognise these inspiring women. In 1980, former soldiers who had survived POW camps dedicated a bronze plaque at the Mount Samat Shrine in honour of the valiant American military women who gave so much of themselves in the early days of World War II. After years of campaigning, Davison was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Medal on August 20, 2001. While none of the Angels of Batan are believed to survive today, they would no doubt be thrilled to know that their part in history is being told in books like We Band of Angels. It's about time. There have been stories written, a person's personal story. But nobody's ever told the whole story, said former army nurse and prisoner of war Helen Cassiani Nesta in 1999. There's still a lot of discussion about the role of women in combat. Our group proved that we could go into the field and carry on and do a good job. People need to know that. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 183 of the Origins podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you'd like to become a patron of the podcast and get access to a couple of these Origin podcasts every month, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash origins. Without the support of the patrons, I wouldn't be able to do these podcasts, so your help would be greatly appreciated. So until next time, this is Paul saying bye for now, everyone. Keep well, keep safe, and thank you for listening.